Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law. I'm Joyce Vance. After last week's talk about grand juries, we've received a lot of great feedback and more questions about the processes that keep our legal system running. With the trial of Derek Chauvin starting this week in Minneapolis, we'll be taking an in-depth look at how jury selection works. We'll also explain what's going on in states regarding the rights of transgender people, and then we'll celebrate Merrick Garland's confirmation as Attorney General. And as usual, we'll be answering some of your questions at the end of the show. Before we get started this week, we are going to start with some amazing news. Kim, why don't you tell us about the dress? (laughs) So I don't know how amazing the news is, but I decided um, to design my own dress for my wedding. I had been going back and forth about whether to buy one or or to make one, and I was putting a lot of pressure on myself. And I had accumulated some um, really beautiful silk uh, over the course of the pandemic and also um, some really lovely lace. And I'm like, lace is normally not my style, but I really like this lace. And so I have actually begun draping and cutting and pinning together what will ultimately be what I wear. Um, But I have to, you know, get it together. I had to make a decision because the wedding is the month after next. But, um, you know, I'm inspired by Joyce and her creativity with her knitting. And so I wanted to get in on it. I I hope it lives up to your expectation. I I love it that the big news isn't that that Kim's getting married and that there's going to be a (laughs) wedding and it's in May, but it's the dress that we have to focus on the dress. But no, it sounds it sounds very beautiful and what a nice gesture, what a fun thing to do to to make your own dress for the wedding. I hope all our listeners know that Kim is a very good designer and actually has uh, available some of her designs online. Oh, you're very kind. You're very kind. Thank you. Yes, it's something I've been doing on the side for about 10 years and um, so, yeah, some some weeks later when we do an episode, if I'm tearing my hair out, you can remind me whether or not this was a good idea for me to do this. What is your design line called, Kim? It's Kim Elline. It's my first and middle name, um, E-L-L-E-E-N. I'm relaunching, so it's not up at the, this very moment. Um, I sort of closed it down during the pandemic, but I'm relaunching soon. So keep an eye out for that. All right. Well, let's get into it. As Joyce said, uh, with the start of the trial of Derek Chauvin and the other officers in the death of George Floyd, we thought we would talk a little bit about jury selection and how that works, who serves on a jury, how they're selected, and some of the strategies that lawyers use in selecting a jury. Um, and when we were talking about this, Kim, um, you told us that you've actually served on juries and been a four-person before. So maybe you can start by telling us you know, how people get selected to serve on a jury. Yeah, I mean, I'm a former litigator, but I think I've had just as much actual courtroom experience with juries, actually being on juries, <laughs> as I have been in in court arguing to juries. Um, I served on, there was a, a period of time that I served in quick succession on three juries, two in Boston and one in New York City. Um, and the first was when I was still a law student uh, at Boston University, and I got called. I got called for jury duty at Roxbury District Court in Boston. I'll never forget this. And I was thinking, there's no way they're going to seat me, right? I'm a law student. Like in Boston, landlords don't even like renting apartments to law students because they're so known to try to, you know, practice the trade before they're licensed and try to sue everybody and think they know more about the law than they actually do. So I thought that's going to totally get me kicked off this jury. And we went through uh, and brought the jury pool in. um, And 
you know, we were questioned by the judge. And so then the judge starts calling the names of jurors. You know, juror number seven, you're dismissed. Juror number 14, you're dismissed. And I thought, okay, I'm out of here. And he called my number. <laughs> I start picking up my purse and thinking, okay, this is done. And he said, go sit in seat number one. And so I get up and I move seats. And he says, you are the four person and this is the jury. And I thought, oh, what? That this can't be true. So yeah, that was my first um, a, and a really important lesson about juries. It was a criminal case. It was a um, a case of drug possession with the intent to distribute. Um, and I, I just, I what I remember most about it was, um, A, that the prosecution didn't make its case. They just didn't have what they needed from the police, from the investigators to 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 bring uh, to make the the elements of the case. And and it was definitely a charge for intent to distribute. It wasn't just mere possession. Um, and and maybe that would have made a difference, but that wasn't it. But you know, we go into deliberate, and and I was talking to the the other jurors, and we went through and deliberated, and then we took a vote, and it was eleven to one to acquit. One person voting guilty. Um, 11 voting not guilty. And so we deliberated some more. I'm trying to be thorough and make sure I'm doing my job correctly. Again, 11 to 1. And it seemed strange because it seemed that we were in agreement. Um, but I talked to the one woman, she was an older woman, and she, I said, well, you realize that the prosecution has to, the burden of making this case. She says, yes. And I said, do you think that the prosecution made the case? She goes, no. And I said, okay, then you have to vote not guilty. She goes, no, but I think he did it. <laughs> and you're not supposed to bring in, like you should know, you're not supposed to consider anything other than the evidence presented to you at trial, right? And I felt like I was breaking the rules, but I turned into a little mini lawyer and said, look, that's not how it works. We are done here. Like you, <laughs> the, the burden is on the prosecution. If you say that they didn't make it, we have to go. You may believe that he actually did it, but that's not what we're here to do. And so I'm going to sign this jury form now and notify um the court officer that we are done and this trial is over. Um, but yeah, that was the first of of several times I was on a jury um, and also served as the four person. I don't think I was quite as pushy um, subsequently, <laughs> but I also thought I was a lawyer both of those times, a practicing lawyer. And I thought if anybody, that that particularly the prosecution might want to not have me on those juries, but I was seated every time. It was really uh, incredible. But it, I, like I said, it was a great lesson. And when I became a litigator, understanding what the people on the other side uh, were feeling. And, um, you know, it's exactly for that reason that I've always been reluctant to have lawyers on my juries or experts in uh, subjects that might come up in the case, because I, I didn't want all the other jurors to just sort of rely on that person. You know, that person becomes kind of the super jury and it becomes a jury of one because people are likely to defer to the person with expertise. Would you say, Kim, based on your experience, you have more or less confidence in uh, the justice that is served by juries? I have more respect for jurors because that's a tough job, especially if mm. the case is complex and it's hard to keep your concentration in a, in a courtroom. It's not a great environment. Um, and it's so important in criminal trials, somebody's liberty is at stake and it's so important. So I have a lot of respect for juries um, and understanding that it is really, really hard and understanding that you can put on a good case. I mean, I was a civil litigator, not criminal. But I know that there were times that we put on a really good case and we should have won a trial and we lost for reasons that, you know, it was clear the jury didn't like my client or mm -hmm. or it was something else going on that distracted them. Um, and so you know that it is an imperfect system. 
Um, it's an important system for somebody to be tried by a jury of their peers, but it certainly doesn't always work the way it's intended. Yeah, well, and there's the whole concept of jury nullification, right? Where, as you say, uh, even if the the evidence looks like it makes out a case, that's a power that jurors have to say, uh, we don't think that justice is served here by bringing a guilty verdict. And so it is a power that we give to jurors. All right. Well, so so, so say you get your summons in the mail and it asks you to come show up to, to court uh, to appear for jury duty. And, and there you are. Jill, can you take us to the next step? You know, the lawyers go through um, a process um, for jury selection and you know, just just to be multicultural here, I'll ask Joyce what they call it in Alabama. What do they call that selection process in Alabama? We call it voir dire. Voir dire, or to translate for the Northerners, voir dire, um, tomato, tomato. Um, but maybe I Jill, took French. You... I took French, so I say voir dire. <laughs> it's very elegant. Very elegant. Um, but I think it's Latin for something like to speak the truth, right? It's the process where ju- prospective jurors are asked some questions to. Uh, determine whether they might have some bias in this case. But Jill, maybe you can talk about the process that lawyers go through in that voir dire process to select jurors. Sure. And I think it actually means to see and to speak. So I, I, that's my French interpretation. But Kim, maybe you can tell me for sure since you speak French. Moi aussi. Okay. So it is. Um, yes. So the next thing that happens after you get the summons and you show up at court is at least um, in in many jurisdictions, you fill out some kind of basic background information, and then you're called in in panels, and the lawyers will ask questions. In some cases, the judge may even ask questions, and sometimes only the judge will ask questions. But the questions are basically to determine whether you can decide the case based on the information that's presented in the courtroom that even if you know something about the case, that you can set that aside and be guided only by what's presented as admissible evidence in the court. And they will ask all kinds of questions depending on the type of case. And then after they hear your answers, they can move to strike or accept. They can strike you for cause, which means you've said something like, I cannot be unbiased in this case. I have a firm opinion of the guilt and then you'll be excused. Um, Or it could be something else that they think has um, a conflict of interest or that you have a relationship in a way to someone involved in the case. That would be cause. Then there are what's called peremptory challenges, which are just, I, as the trial lawyer, decide you don't fit into my strategy and I'm going to strike you. I don't have to say why, You have a limited number of those available in a case. Um, In the Derek Chauvin case, it has, the defense has more than the prosecution, and they have more than is usually granted. But there is an assigned number, and you have to dole those out to make sure that you don't run out of peremptories before the jury pool um, has come before you. And the peremptories cannot be used for illegal reasons, like you cannot, in this case, strike all African-American potential jurors uh, because you think they won't be good. Um, I have one case that fits something you said, Barbara, which is uh, the chief of police was in the jury pool, which, of course, I, as a prosecutor, was like, yeah, that's good. And I was shocked when he wasn't struck from the jury by the defense And then the jury hung, and he was the one who caused the hung jury. He was actually against conviction. 
And so you never really can predict, although normally you would say the chief of police would be great for a prosecutor to have on the team. But um, And I agree with what you said, Barbara, about you don't want to have normally someone who's an expert because then if you don't win that one juror, you're lost. And you want to make sure that the jury is fully um, even and can all express their opinions. So that's what peremptory and for cause is. So that would be the next step. Yeah. I And, you know, the, the kinds of people that I would strike mostly were people I perceived didn't want to be there because I wanted to make sure jurors were going to fully deliberate. And it might take some time to do that. But, you know, you would sometimes get the sense in their answers that people would say things like, you know, I own a business or I care for small children. And uh, for those people, I didn't want them to be distracted. So those are people I might use a peremptory challenge on. One juror who made it through that was very surprising to me occurred when I was a law clerk, my first job out of law school uh, for a judge in Detroit. And word got around the building that in one of the courtrooms on a jury, uh, w- one of the jurors was Bob Seeger, the rock star. And this was in the early 90s. He was still a rock star then. So we all, you know, took turns going into the courtroom just to watch Bob Seeger watch, you know, <laughs> sitting as a juror. And we'd come out, you know, very excited. And I saw Bob Seeger. Really? What was he doing? He was watching the trial. Wow. So we considered that uh, very, very exciting, our brush with, with fame. So I, I just want to say one thing about what Kim said, which was, Every time I have been in a jury pool, I am excused. I have wanted to be on a jury. I thought it would be fascinating to be able to be on the jury. Uh, And sometimes when I sign in, the clerk will look at my form and look at it and go, former prosecutor, former defense lawyer, former this, former that. Uh, You may as well go home now because no one will put you on a jury. And I have begged to stay. And they say, it's ridiculous. Please leave. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, same. I've been excused too. But Joyce, I think you got you got close once, right? You got in the room into the veneer, and uh, were excused. I was in the venari um, in a state case, and it was a big venari, maybe eighty people. And the state court judge, who I knew pretty well, looks out at the room, looks at me, and says, "Well, Mrs. Vance, I don't suppose you'll be with us here for very long." And I had been very low-key in the room with the other jurors. In fact, I was just knitting and keeping to myself. So when he said that, I think that they just all assumed that he knew who I was, maybe because of some criminal association. And the people on either side of me sort of shrank away from me. I felt really bad. (laughs) And I was um, excused from participating in the jury very promptly. Well, why don't we pick up on what Jill was talking about? She mentioned that you know, you can use peremptory challenges to strike jurors, as I said, for maybe people who don't want to be there, but you can't use it in a discriminatory way. Um, And there's some case law about that. Maybe you can talk about that. There is. There's a 1986 Supreme Court state called Batson that every lawyer who tries jury cases knows about. And Batson essentially holds that prosecutors cannot strike jurors because of their race. You can't discriminate against a juror because they're Black. Um, It has since been expanded to include gender. Beyond that, there are sort of a lot of open questions. But it is well established that, for instance, if the defendant is Black and believes that the prosecution is striking Black jurors, not for any reason other than their race, the defense can challenge those strikes and force the prosecutor to account for their behavior And in some cases, that can even be reversible error on appeal after a conviction 
if the prosecutor, in fact, was discriminating. Yeah, I mean, I just want to to jump in on that because we hear a lot about Batson challenges and, and how important that they are and the fact that jurors can't be struck for their race. But what Batson actually holds in real life is that when a juror is struck and the uh, opposing attorney raises the a Batson objection saying that it was because of their race, what the uh, other attorney has to do is essentially put forth another reason. And because there is such broad um, leniency when it comes to peremptory strikes, a lot of times you will say, well, no, it's because he was wearing a red shirt. And I really don't think that someone with a red shirt is the kind of jury that, juror that we need on this. And in some cases, the judge will say, well, all right, that's good with me. And and yes, on an appeal, that could be an appealable grounds to overturn, as Joyce points out. But I think that law in itself does not give the protections, um, the full protections against the, uh, the the practice of striking Black jurors, particularly in criminal trials that involve Black defendants. That happens not just in the South. I mean, the case in Batson, I believe that was out of um, Kentucky. Kentucky. But um it happens all across the country, uh, this practice, and it was really prevalent, which is evidence of how prevalent it was, was put forth in uh, that Batson case. And so I have really, I, I have mixed feelings about Batson. I think that it it doesn't set the standard strongly enough um, for uh, uh, someone trying to strike someone to prove that that was not the actual reason. One thing I will say in support of Batson is that the Supreme Court takes it seriously And there's actually a three-step process that happens. First, if it's the defense lawyer objecting to the strike, they have to put on what's called a prima facie case for why it's discriminatory. That's a pretty low threshold. And then, as Kim says, the prosecution can come back and they suggest a non-discriminatory reason. And the ultimate burden falls on the defense lawyer to, to establish that the reason that the prosecution has set forward is pretextual. That it's, that it's actually a cover-up for discrimination. And so, while I take your point, Kim, I think something that doesn't happen here that should happen more is that lawyers aren't prepared to vigorously litigate bats and challenges and to preserve the record so that if there is a problem, it can be taken up on appeal. And, and you know, we have an example out of Mississippi that I think is a tragic example a case involving a man named Curtis Flowers. He gets convicted six times. The case goes up on appeal every time. Sometimes it gets reversed. Some, you know, it's it's just an absolute nightmare. And and he's accused of killing four people. It's a capital case. And on the last appeal, it comes to light that over all of these trials, 41 out of 42 times, the prosecution has struck black jurors. And in in the case under consideration, Flowers is convicted by a jury that has only one African-American on it. He lives in an area where the population mix is roughly 50-50. And even the Supreme Court has had too much. And they say this is an absolute violation. They reverse the conviction. And the state of Mississippi finally decides it's not going to put him on trial again. So... uh, You know, one thing, Kim, that I think really weighs in favor of the argument that you're making is this is a torturous process. He's in prison for a long time. He loses many years in his life before he's ultimately released. 
And, and perhaps we do need stronger standards and lawyers need to be better versed in how to deal with these issues. This week's episode is sponsored by Audible, the number one source of spoken word entertainment with the largest audiobooks collection out there. I'm listening to Trevor Noah's Born a Crime right now and find it absolutely wonderful on Audible. It couldn't be better reading it. And of course, I feel like I also have to mention that everyone should listen to The Watergate Girl on Audible. Joyce, what are you listening to now? Well, right now I'm actually listening to a book that I've read before. It's our MSNBC colleague Paul Butler's book, Chokehold, as issues about police violence and police reform are important right now, both for us in our public conversations and and for me as I teach, I wanted to have the opportunity to listen to Paul's really excellent book, which I highly recommend again. But y'all know that I'm I'm really a fiction listener. This is this is how I, I think get my guilty pleasure relaxation time. And I'll tell y'all, I have this great audible moment. It's been many years now. But I was on a flight that was delayed, and I was out of stuff to read, and I was out of knitting, which is really unusual for me. And I realized that because I had Audible, I could just, in the moment, download a book, and I would have something to listen to. And I have to say, that changed my life. I I love the notion that I will never run out. Well, I'm also reading Born a Crime, uh, Jill. Good taste. Um, And one of the things that I think is so fun about the book is it's, it's read by Trevor Noah himself. And so he talks about his upbringing in South Africa. He does voices of his mother and other people in his life. Um, and I think it's just terrific. It's, um, you know, I, I, he's a comedian, so you expect him to be funny, and he is. But boy, he is also very thoughtful about issues of race and his descriptions of growing up, you know, born a crime is the fact that he had, uh, he is the product of an interracial relationship, which was illegal at the time in South Africa. Such an interesting thing to listen to a racist structure that's different from the one that we all know in the United States. Really, really fascinating. Yeah, I love Audible too. I've been a fan for a long time. Uh, I am actually listening to The Watergate Girl. I'm not just saying that because because oh. Jill's here. That's actually <laughs> the truth. But one of my favorite things about Audible, um, honestly, isn't even a book. It's the fact that uh, a lot of news organizations, newspapers will have their daily digests of their front pages and stories that are in the paper that morning. And so when I'm getting ready, if I'm walking my dog or if I have an early morning TV hit and I have to, you know, put makeup on and stuff and my hands and eyes are busy, um, it's a really, really great tool to be able to hear the headlines, know what's going on and sort of get a jump. Uh, on the news of the day uh, by having it read to you. Yeah, they've got bestsellers, classics, new releases, and even original entertainment from top celebrity creators. And Audible also has thousands of popular and binge-worthy podcasts, including this one, hashtag sistersinlaw. And so right now you can, through our partnership with Audible, get 30 days for free with full access to the Plus catalog. And for following up on what Kim said, it also means that you don't wake your husband up while you're listening. So you can even go to bed <laughs> in the same bed and listen without waking him up. So Audible is filled with thousands of audiobooks, original entertainment, guided fitness and meditation, sleep tracks for better rest, and so much more. You'll want to listen to it all. I know I do. Um, Audible has everything you love to listen to, all in one app. Try Audible for 30 days on us to download titles and listen offline anytime, anywhere. Just visit audible.com slash sistersinlaw. That's all one word. 
or text SISTERS-IN-LAW to 500-500. Please go to audible.com slash SISTERS-IN-LAW or text SISTERS-IN-LAW to 500-500. Or look for the link in our show notes and claim your free 30-day trial. That's the best kind of trial. Thanks to Audible for sponsoring this episode. And we thank you, our listeners, for supporting them. All right, well, maybe we can move on to our next topic. Yes, and uh, it's a weighty one. Um, Right now, there is a lot happening at both the state and federal level when it comes to uh, LGBTQ rights. Um, States like Mississippi are passing laws that essentially uh, take rights away from LGBTQ folks. The law uh, in Mississippi would, would, for example, ban transgender athletes from participating in sports that are consistent with their gender identification. And this feels like a, a move, a very different move in direction in the country than what we have seen, what we saw leading up to the Supreme Court ruling, for example, in same-sex marriage. We saw uh, a really strong support and growing support uh, for granting more rights for LGBTQ folks. In fact, um, I I wrote a column about uh, this that was in The Globe today, and I note that 80% of, um, 83% of Americans overall support non-discrimination laws that protect gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people from discrimination. And that's a majority of Democrats, a majority of Republicans, a majority of independents. So it's not a, and it shouldn't be a partisan issue, but it's being used as such. And so uh, in the Senate, they're now considering the House-Passed Equality Act, which would essentially extend the current federal law protections of LGBTQ uh, to LGBTQ people of the laws that are already in place that ban discrimination on the basis of things like uh, race or gender or religion and other protected categories. Um, And the number one, and I want to get you guys' take on this, because the number one objection that people like Senator Mitt Romney uh, have to this bill is that they say that it tramples on religious liberty. In, In my piece, I point out that there are few rights that are better protected by the Constitution and laws on the federal and state level than the right to uh, worship as one sees fit, to to practice as they see fit, to um, and then an inability for the government to get in the way of people's practice of religion. That's very well protected, and I think that's very much a false flag here. But that's this tension that's being created in the political. Uh, venue saying that these laws make it difficult for people, will force people to do things that are against their religion. I I will note that the Equality Act specifically keeps in place an exemption that already exists in state law for employers that will not make them do any such thing. They can decide they will only hire people who are within their religion. They can deny housing to people who don't worship and believe that they do. There's a lot of federal protection built in that this law doesn't even take away. But we're still seeing that tension. And I want to to get you all's uh, take about where you think this is going. Joyce, what do you think? Well, I tend to agree with you, Kim. This is a very unfair development. It's in many ways a backlash to Obergefell, the marriage equality case, but I think it signifies something else, and it's an effort to drive a wedge between people, something that sets up a dichotomy, us versus them, religious rights versus gay people. And it's another one of those moments of cultural divisiveness 
that, you know, politicizes issues in a, a really unnecessary way. So I'll, I'll just tell y'all briefly, I wrote a piece this week for CAFE about a bill that is making its way through the Alabama legislature. It is almost certain to pass. And what it does is it denies medical care to transgender people under the age of 19, even if both they and their, their parents want it, purely because they're transgender. And there was a moment when the bill was being discussed in the legislature where a dad who's a police officer in a small Alabama town testified about how when his 16-year-old came out, this medical care was life-saving for the child. And he says to the legislature, which will criminalize the provision of medical care when the act passes, please don't make me as a police officer go out and put handcuffs on the people who saved my child's life. It, it seems to me that this is not about religion. This is about people. This is about respect. This is about fundamental civil rights. And I hope by taking this up, we can change the conversation a little bit. Yeah, you know, here in Michigan, there's a similar uh, bill that has been uh, put forth, Kim, to the one that you mentioned in Mississippi about requiring high school athletes to play on teams that match their birth gender and, and using birth certificates to prove it. And it's being touted as, um, you know, a pro-girls uh, sports bill. Uh, but it, it's, to me, it seems that it is very much um, a solution in search of a problem. I am not aware that we have all of these transgender girls, uh, you know, taking the slots of, of other girls uh, on sports teams. And I, I just think that's the wrong way to think about it, right? I mean, Girls are yeah. girls, whether they're born girls or the transgender girls. And um, I think that um, it, it feels to me that religion is being used as a pretext. I think that the focus on things like sports um, and, and public accommodations helps to push forward this really tired trope that a lot of people who and religious groups who oppose this law keep bringing up is that, oh, this law would force you to allow a man to dress up in a dress and then go into a women's room and menace everyone in there. All the, first of all, that doesn't happen. Can, can we just be really clear? It, it always this, comes down to bathrooms, doesn't it? Exactly. It's, about the it's always focused on <laughs> bathrooms. And this is not a problem. We don't see a lot of men dressing up as women and menacing girls and women in, in women's rooms. Um, and... Honestly, trans folks have been in this world for a long time and they've been using the bathroom. But one thing that is, <laughs> is important if you're thinking about going to the bathroom is that a friend of mine once explained to me just what a horrifying experience it could be as a trans woman to try to use a public restroom where you could face harassment, where you could be chided. If you're in a, 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 a popular restaurant where, as women know, we often have to wait in line to get into to a bathroom. And as they're standing there, they're so self-conscious because they have been the victim of harassment, threats, um, really horrific treatment in public to the point that my friend said when she goes out to dinner with her friends for the longest time, she wouldn't drink anything because she just didn't want to go through that. She couldn't even relieve herself in public. We need laws to protect people, not laws to protect against some non-existent threat of a man dressing up um, in, in order to to do that. So it's it's really it's really um, it's a disingenuous argument. I find it also seems like if that's the argument that it is. A, not only a silly argument, but that it's 
the best they can do, it makes you realize that they don't have a good argument against it. And bathrooms was one of the big objections to ERA back in the day. And so it is, again, one of those things. But my question is, why are politicians so far behind the public? Kim, you just said 83% of Americans are in favor of equality laws. What's wrong with the politicians who are trying to pass these horrendous laws and stop the rights? So we need to look at where that diversion comes from. And and I want to underscore here, um, because anytime I write about religious rights, my, my inbox is just filled with people um, who are uh, saying that, you know, I came up from the devil to try to deliver a, an anti-religious message. I am myself a pers- am a person of faith. I, I do believe that faith is important. I think that it is a wonderful and very important thing that the First Amendment and federal laws give such strong protection to religious rights. In fact, the very um, law that this that this the uh, Equality Act will seek to expand to apply to LGBTQ folks also protects you from discrimination on the basis of your religion, and that's important. But the First Amendment already gives such broad protection. Like the legal part of this is so important. Such broad protection to everybody's ability to practice their religion as they see fit. It gives such, uh, federal laws give such broad protection. And although I think in part of, I think the reason that this is happening, Jill, this um, pushback against this is because of these um, cultural wars. There are wars that make it so that churches are purposely gathering in the middle of a pandemic just because they want to file that legal challenge against their Democratic uh, local official to try to push back against COVID uh, restrictions on the number of people who can gather. That's a great cultural inflection point. And it's terrible because not only is it not really about what freedom of religion is about, but it puts people in danger. But that's the climate that we're in, where people think that that is a positive thing, that that helps them. And I think um, that's why it's so important to me to say, no, no, the law already protects you. It's really, some people may think that this law might trample on religious rights. I think it's important to explain that it doesn't. Well, and this effort to divide us among religious lines, is it's both reprehensible, but I think it's ultimately doomed to fail because so many people will see through this. And I'm reminded that during the Obama administration, when Vanita Gupta, who is now the nominee to be the associate attorney general, ran the civil rights division, she commissioned a series of roundtables that were held across the country on issues of religious freedom and I co-chaired one with her in Birmingham yeah, on in religious Detroit. freedom in, in the workplace. Mm-hmm. That's right. I had forgotten you did that mm-hmm. too, Barb. It was an uplifting experience. We had people around the table from a lot of different faiths. We have a very diverse community down here. So we had you know Muslims and Sikhs and Hindus and Jews and a whole bunch of different varieties of Christians sitting around the table. We also had um, uh, representatives from a community that described itself as people who have not been blessed with the gift of faith. And so it was a very robust conversation. What I heard was people talking about the support they felt from the diverse religious community in the workplace, and that when there were issues, you know, for instance, a workplace where there was Christian prayer at lunch or something like that, that folks were very open to working out a solution among themselves. So my optimistic hope here is that people will see through efforts to divide us that are nothing more than political tricks and that that we'll be our best selves. 
You know, one case that I think um, mucks up the debate a little bit and might be the kind of thing that gives Mitt Romney cover for these kinds of arguments is that case that the Supreme Court decided a couple of years ago called Masterpiece Cake Shop. Uh, you may recall this was a case brought by two men who were getting married and they went to a fancy cake shop and asked them to, to bake them a wedding cake. And the cake shop refused because they they were gay and said, we don't make uh, cakes for gay weddings as a matter of our religious rights, our religious freedom. You know, this is a store that is otherwise open to the public. And the Colorado Civil Rights Commission said, no, you cannot uh, deny them. You have violated the Colorado Civil Rights uh, laws. Uh, and that case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the court held in favor of the Masterpiece Cake Shop. But what's really important is the basis of their ruling, because I think people, you know, in our soundbite world um, use it to say, see, you get to discriminate against people based on uh, their sexual orientation. Um, but in fact, what they found there was the reason that it was uh, protected as their religious rights was because it was a creative expression. And what the, the in the Supreme Court, I don't know, bought this argument that um, if you are expressing your religious faith in a creative way, that is different from other services. In other words, they weren't just selling widgets to people, uh, for everybody who comes in the door. Uh, this man said he was expressing his religious faith through the baking of cakes. They also said that the Civil Rights Commission in Colorado showed hostility uh, toward the bake shop in um, their decision. And so I think when you look at it at that level, it is not simply that we all have a right to simply discriminate against people based on their sexual orientation. It should be contained to its facts. I also believe that that case will one yes. day be looked at the way we today look at cases like Plessy versus Ferguson, I agree. Uh, you know, separate but equal, and say, oh my gosh, what lengths did they go to to try to preserve this ability to deny a cake because yeah, no, the names it, were Charlie and Dave instead of Charlie and Don? I mean, it really is a tortured uh, mm -hmm. decision, and I've been thinking a lot. I mean, I'm not going to buy a cake for my wedding. Um, if I did, I would want to go to a shop that serves everyone. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it makes me think that not far away from here, uh, a a street that was formerly formerly named for a Confederate general is going to be called Loving because very recently it would have been illegal for my fiance and I to do what we're about to do the month after next. So it tells you how um, tenuous these protections are and how important it is for lawmakers and the courts to act to protect them. So what do you mean you're not ordering a cake, Kim? I'm not a cake person. I don't, you know, I'm not ice cream. Ordering... You going with ice cream? I'd go with ice cream. I'm not ordering flowers either. I just, I'm not that kind of, <laughs> I'm not that kind of bride. The first thing I did was buy shoes. Like that's the kind of bride I am. I care about the you shoes. You're doing, doing it all exactly wrong. what makes you happy. Whatever <laughs> makes you happy is the right way to do it. Can I, I have had your chocolate cake? cake and it made me happy. <laughs> I just don't want to pick up anything or have to worry about it being delivered. That's just hassle. You're doing it wrong. <laughs> we had multiple cakes. The cakes were the best part. <laughs> well, I'll have the reception in 2022, so I'll have cakes there. All right. I'll make sure you all have cake. All right. It's that's all date. I care about. Do I get my cake? That's all I really care about. <laughs> so maybe we should look at some very good news besides Kim's wedding, which is that yesterday... Merrick Garland became the official attorney general of the United States and went to the Department of Justice and entered through the side entrance and was greeted by applause and cheering. 
And I think that his messages that day were such that it, it was really, to me, moving. First of all, my office at the Department of Justice overlooked that exact entrance. And so as I saw them in the roundabout and everything, it was like, oh, gosh, I remember when it was a joy to work there and when people cared about justice. And he reiterated all of the things that we have been missing for the last four years. So I'd love to hear from each of you about, you know, your view of what can we expect from Merrick Garland? What did he say and do on his first day? I mean, we know he met with people about January 6th, which means to me that gives some priority to what the Department of Justice might do about the insurrection. But I'd love to hear all of your views. Um, you want to start, Barb? Yeah, I loved watching that. You know, there was a little video clip of him arriving at the Justice Department, as you say, Jill. If you know the Justice Department, um, there is a uh, an entrance for vehicles, um, and then it enters into a large courtyard. And the building is actually an enormous building that fills, uh, you know, a whole city block with a courtyard in the middle. So the car pulled in there and there was a crowd of people, employees waiting for him and cheering for him, which I think shows um, how he is very much, uh, you know, a DOJ guy and very welcome at DOJ. And I was also heartened to see that as he walked in, the first person to greet him with an elbow bump was Monty Wilkinson. Monty is a career uh, DOJ employee who has been serving as the acting attorney general during this interim since uh, the Biden administration began. And so I thought it was a very, you know, joyful, I'm, I'm passing on the baton to you now, boss. Here you go. You know, I've been, I've been taking good care of the shop here and making sure the trains run on time, but now it's yours. And, you know, they exchanged smiles and they were filled with joy. Uh, and then he came inside and he spoke to the employees, which I think is so important and reminding everyone who works there um, that we have the same standards. Uh, we care about equal justice under law. We have the same standards, whether someone's a Democrat or a Republican, whether they're rich or poor, uh, whether they're powerful or powerless. Uh, it is our job to make sure that everybody gets equal justice. And, um, you know, maybe that should should go without saying, but it hasn't always gone without saying. And so it's important to say it uh, every day and live it. And uh, I, I, I thought it was um, very energizing to hear him say those uh you know, simple, modest, but incredibly important words. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. You know, I think about um, being a reporter when Bill Barr was nominated to be attorney general and I was calling around to uh, people who I knew who knew of him by reputation or had worked with him. And I was told really almost to a person that this is somebody who is serious. This is somebody who's worked with the DOJ for a long time. He's longtime friends with Robert Mueller. He is, um, you know, they go to church together. Like he is a, he's going to be somebody who um, protects the institution of the DOJ and we should give him a chance. And then we saw what happened. Um, he certainly did not come in Um Bill Barr, he didn't come in saying what Merrick Garland said this week. And, and and that's one of the reasons why Merrick Garland spoke the way that he did and said that the, uh, the DOJ is about protecting the people, that they are the attorneys working on behalf of the people, and certainly uh, by implication not working on behalf of the White House or any one particular person, really trying to restore that independence, really trying to instore uh, the faith in the rule of law, which I think has been so eroded um, over the past couple of years. And so on the one hand, um, 
Merrick Garland has a really low bar. No pun. No, I intend that pun. (laughs) I intend that pun. He has a low bar to clear when compared to his predecessor. But at the same time, it's such a daunting job ahead of him, having to reform, restructure, um, restore the faith of the employees within the Justice Department, uh, and really turn around, both in policy and in um, morale, um, a place that has was just so decimated before our eyes over the last two years, especially. It, it is going to be a hard job. Um, and I was... I actually wrote against Bill Barr's confirmation during that confirmation process because of the bias he had exhibited in in writing a memo where he sort of pre-promised that President Trump couldn't be prosecuted for obstruction. And and I'll, I'll share with you, Kim, I had your same experience. I had a lot of people call me up and tell me that I was wrong um, and that what I had written was I thought was you were unfair. wrong, Joyce. I'll admit it. And I was wrong. I was wrong well, for saying you're wrong. You know, it— I mean, my objection was really based solely on the memo. I think the appearance of propriety, the appearance of impartiality in an attorney general is so important. And we have certainly gotten that from Merrick Garland so far. Something I loved, and and like Barb and, and you, Jill, I have this these fond memories of walking through that courtyard at DOJ, you know, with those huge American flags whipping in the wind as you walk through. It's such a quintessentially American place to be. I loved watching him walk in, and I asked some friends who are still at USA's, well, what did you think? And their takeaway from what Merrick Garland said to them was, he acknowledged that public service is hard, and he thanked us for what we're doing. And that's so important after what the career people have been through with a president who called some of them out by name because they were involved in investigations that hit too close to him by an attorney general who was openly the president's lawyers, not the people, and who, you know, I'm sure that y'all remember at the end of his tenure, Bill Barr gave an interview where he criticized the career people and said that they weren't smart enough to make the difficult decisions that political appointees could make. So this is a, a real return to a principal justice department. You know, Kim, you're right. It's a tough job, and Merrick Garland will be doing a great job if six months in, People who are are now his supporters, as well as people who don't like him, if everybody's critical of some part of the job that he's doing, then he'll be doing it right. Because it's not a job that you do to make friends or to please people. You do it to uphold the law. One thing I was going to say was that I'm sure in the uh, months and years ahead, the four of us are going to disagree with things that he does, um, because that's normal. Like that, it's normal to disagree uh, with decisions that an attorney general makes. That that is because the job is so hard. It is, but I don't think any of us are going to be doubting his uh, integrity or the reasons for his judgments. We may disagree with his judgments. We'll agree on the facts. And I I was very impressed by his remarks. Uh, which were unfortunately delivered virtually to an almost empty Great Hall, which is, you know, one of those places that it's just, I can think of so many memories from that, and and not always from my time, but even from after that, where he was talking about being in public service is a calling, and saying that he felt like he was coming home, and just talking about uh, equal justice, and the rule of law, that's shouldn't, as Barbara said, we shouldn't need to be hearing that. But we do need to hear it because for four years, we've seen the opposite. 
So to me, it's really encouraging. Is there anything specific you think? I mean, I think he set some priorities in the things he did on his first day, aside from addressing people to build morale. Um, He clearly was focused on the January 6th insurrection in some of his meetings. He met with Ray, FBI Director Ray, and with the people in the D.C. office that are looking at the possible prosecution from there. Um, What specific things do you think he's going to focus on in the first 100 days he's in office? You know, I think we'll see a decided focus on civil rights. Um, We've still got confirmations pending for the associate and for the head of the Civil Rights Division, a woman named Kristen Clark, who, if she's confirmed, will come to DOJ from the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, where she's run a nationwide program of some of the best civil rights litigation that's going on. She was uh, she got letters I saw, interestingly, um, this past week from a number of police organizations, including the International Chiefs Association. You don't usually see that for a civil rights lawyer. Uh, but these will be strong leaders There is a lot of work to be done restoring the consent decree process that's used to help police departments who are are struggling get it right, retrain their officers so that we can avoid this horrific series of deaths like we've seen with Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. That has to be a priority for the new attorney general. Yeah, I agree. I think also with civil rights, um, voting rights is going to be extremely important. And that's a lot of uh, work that Kristen did um, with the Lawyers Committee. uh, And that's come up to be such an important uh, issue right now. So I know that that, too, will be at the top of the list. And of course, this the prosecution over January 6th is going to uh, take a huge amount of, of space at the DOJ. Can we talk about what some of the objections are to the confirmation of Vanita and Kristen. Does anybody want to just briefly comment on that? I'll say it. It's the fact that they're women of color. Thank you. I concur. They're immaculately qualified. I mean, you know, people can go online and see their qualifications. Uh, You can look at the people who've endorsed them. It's fascinating that they're endorsed by civil rights groups and law enforcement groups. Uh, experience in in running big litigation programs nationwide, getting good results, very restrained, not not people who are quick to make decisions that are speculative. So I I think that the opposition is, is shameful. So now it's time for us to answer some of your questions. Please do send us your questions to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them using hashtag sistersinlaw. And if we don't get to your questions during the show, Keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week. We'll answer as many of your questions there as we can. So first, y'all, we have a question from Jenna in Illinois. Jenna says, I'm a new attorney, a single mom, and I turned 40 on the 3rd. Congratulations and happy birthday, Jenna. She says, I'm a natural in the courtroom. However, when I have to prepare a written legal argument, I have incredible anxiety about my writing. What encouragement or advice do you have to give for a new female attorney? What do y'all think? Well, I'll, I'll kick it off in, in saying that um, 
it's good for you. Happy birthday. And it's really incredible your ability to juggle everything that you are juggling. When I was an attorney, um, I did not have a child. I did not even have a dog yet. And it was hard enough to keep uh, up with everything that I had to do. So um, kudos to you. But I think what you are experiencing in a way I think is normal. I think you can cut yourself a little slack. When I practiced as an attorney, I loved arguing in court, particularly appeals. They, my my firm gave me all the appeals um, because nobody else in the office liked doing them. And I loved them. And I was arguing at the First Circuit um, my very first year practicing law. And it was so great. But asked me to talk, to have a conference with opposing counsel, and I hated it. I would get, my palms would get sweaty, and I would feel um, so inadequate and insecure. And I just, um, I think we all struggle with different things that we're better at and different things that we're not. As time goes on, it will become second nature to you. Um, But I I think that, um, you know, I think it's just one thing that helped me um, in doing and in, in thinking about the things that I was less confident in, one of them included writing. And I was sitting and going over a, 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 a memo with a motion over and over again. And I had my blue book out, you know, for citations. And the partner in the firm walked in one day, saw me in there writing, grabbed the blue book from in front of me, walked away and threw it in the trash can and then walked out and he said, you got this. And what he was saying is, you have the goods. I believe in you. You have it. Stop worrying about the technicalities. Stop, get out of your own head and just do it. And once I started doing that, uh, I started winning motions. So he was That's absolutely great. right. Having so, good mentors can be so helpful, right? Just super somebody important. who says, I have confidence in you. But not everybody has that. And maybe Jenna doesn't, does or doesn't. But, you know, I, I would say to Jenna that uh, I think all of us, to some extent, suffer from the imposter syndrome. That is, you know, what am I doing here? It's only a matter of time before they figure out that I, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, and I, I think that's common for everybody. Um, but uh, the longer you practice, the more confident you will become. You know, it's like anything. Um, our second question is from Marie in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And she writes, is there any way a law could be passed specifically for a president that gave prosecutors an extended statute of limitations? So let me start on that one. You can't pass a law that would cover a past president. We don't allow that in America. It's considered extremely unconstitutional to have uh, a punishment created after the fact. But I think maybe you would be encouraged to know that there are exceptions to the statute of limitations. And let's look at New York particularly, since there are cases being investigated against the past president right now in New York. And in New York, part of the statute of limitations that is excluded from being counted is days that you are absent from the state. So all of the time in the last four years of being the president that Trump did not live in New York and only visited a few days, those days, basically four full years, will be excluded so that the normal five-year statute of limitations really becomes any crime that was committed during the last nine years because it won't run until then. So there are ways to do it in the future for other people. Hopefully we'll never have this issue come up again uh, where we need to be looking at a statute of limitations for a former president. So I'll move on to our final question from John. Why are so many lawyers getting away with so much BS? anything from sloppy work to engaging in criminal conspiracy and more. 
Where are the disciplinary authorities? Where is the ABA? Um, As the former executive director and chief operating officer of the ABA, they are not the body that sets these rules. They are involved in creating ethics, uh, but it is the state bars that would have to uh, take action against an attorney. And that requires that someone file a complaint. There are other ways. I have been screaming on Twitter that why hasn't anyone filed for sanctions? Any of the defendants in what I consider to be the frivolous election lawsuits is entitled to file for sanctions against the lawyer and the client for filing frivolous cases that are going to be dismissed. They are entitled to get repaid for any legal expenses incurred and possibly for other things. So I hope that this will take place. Um, John Dean, since Watergate, um, has been teaching a course for lawyers, which you get continuing legal education credit for, in ethics. He works with a lawyer from Ohio named James Robinall, and it's a very effective course because he said, look at how many lawyers were defendants in this case. Look at how many lawyers did the wrong things. You had one of the defense lawyers taking cash in brown paper bags and distributing it as hush money. So those are things that obviously are criminal, but also also clearly they are violations of ethical rules. And I think we need to be looking at those more and more. And that's one way that we can deal with this. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Jill Weinbanks, Kimberly Atkins, and me, Joyce Vance. Don't forget to send your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. You'll find the links in the show notes as well. To keep up with us every week, subscribe to hashtag sistersinlaw on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and please give us a five-star review. We love to read your comments. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag sistersinlaw. I have I love talking about Rule 11 so much. I'm such a nerd. Like I Me too. <laughs>